What up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum and a proud member of the Drum Click Podcast Network. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Terry Keating. So when I first started this podcast, I had no idea what I was doing. Sometimes I feel like I still don't. So it was just called the Big Fat Snare Drum Podcast, and there wasn't really any sort of format besides it hopefully focusing on drums. Then in the summer of 2020, I really started to hone in on a format that excited me, which is what you're used to now. But I still wanted to separate the original episodes from the current state of the show to avoid confusion. The good news is you can still hear all those conversations at BigFatSnareDrum.com under the Archived Episodes tab, but they no longer exist on this feed. That being said, one of my favorite episodes I ever released featured Terry Keating, a massive John Bonham historian and enthusiast who runs the YouTube page Bonzolium. And while it was one of the most listened to episodes, it was released during the Big Fat Snare Drum podcast era, so it was archived. But for many reasons, I wanted to bring it back to life, so I'm re-airing it so people can enjoy the energy that is Terry Keating all over again. I initially wanted to get him on the show to discuss five hidden gems in John Bonham's catalog that drummers might not necessarily know unless he or she is a huge Led Zeppelin fan. I'm not not a fan, but I'd fall into the category that surprisingly a lot of my peers fall into, which is, yeah, I know Fool in the Rain, Good Times, Bad Times, Rock and Roll, and When the Levee Breaks, but I know I should know more. I don't think I'm in a small group, so that's why I wanted to have Terry on. Anyways, we immediately started talking like old friends, so I just put my notes away and pushed record. It ended up being an almost two-hour conversation about what makes Bonzo Bonzo, why people are obsessed with his gear as much as his playing, sometimes more, and just tons of anecdotes, fun pieces of trivia that only a Bonzo aficionado would know. I was going to try and edit it down, but Terry's so fun to listen to, so I basically kept the whole thing running. This might take a few listens, but it ended up being one of my favorite episodes, like I said. And thank you, Terry, for being so generous with your time and enthusiasm for all that is Bonzo. Please enjoy it. And uh, all right, I'm shutting up. Cheers. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny as far as Bonzo goes, it's kind of like, um, you, you know, it, it's, see, I kind of stumbled into this. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't have the best technical skill at all, but I used to see videos, namely one of the videos I first saw was Steve Smith's video. He put up like, it's not even a video. It was literally a VHS cassette. He probably put out in the early nineties where he's playing fool in the rain, but he's not playing it right at all. But don't get me wrong, what he's playing sounds great, and it's, you know, I mean, it's very difficult to play, but it's not what he's playing. And then I'd see other, some, you know, bottom YouTuber types, and they'd be showing stuff, and it just wasn't correct. So I'm like, well, all right. So then I just started putting videos up for what I believed was the right way. And sure. uh, next thing you know, people are like, hey, man, I like your videos. So I just freaking kept making them. So, so have I'm, you have you always been? I mean, was, was Bonzo your, your dude from day one? Well, the funny thing is, is that, I actually, growing up, when I was really, really little, my dad was, he was pretty hip, and especially for his age. I mean, right now he's 85. But yeah, we're growing up, we, he, he had uh, Beatles records, he had all the Beatles records, he had Pink Floyd, we had some monkeys, we had the monkeys records, and we had uh, Elton John, and, and that kind of stuff, you know? So when I was first listening to music, I would put on, like, actually Elton John records, and I'd be really little, and I'd be listening to them on the headphones, and that was really good for, like, you know, to pick up, like, harmonies. But what happened was then I got into like the Stones 
And then my cousin listened to the Stones. And then my brother had Zeppelin albums. He had Zeppelin. Uh, he had the first Zeppelin record, the second, the third, the fourth, and the song remains the same. Uh, and then I think I went out and I bought physical graffiti and then through the outdoor and presence. So I was probably like 10, by 10 or 11 by the time I first got into Zepp. And I remember the, the thing that really, I mean, the songs were kind of cool and stuff, but I, when I started listening to the live vinyl, the, uh, the song remains the same soundtrack, the yeah. version of No Quarter, and it's funny, Jimmy Page, ever since they released it, ever since 76, the movie came out, the soundtrack came out, kind of starting after the first remaster, like the first remaster to, D, to CD, he probably left it the same, but pretty much after that, he started editing the No Quarter shorter to make it fit with the movie because, you know, the soundtrack's a little different, the audio, than, than the movie with how they're playing it, the movie, you know, in the, in the film that they took from the show. And, uh, and it's just butchered. And it's, and it's just the way Bonham plays on it, and that's what really turned me out of the Pisces, too, the 2002s. You know, just how they sounded. I remember looking at the pictures and seeing the word Pisces underneath the symbol or pasty, you know. I was like, God, what the fuck? And going to music stores, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, here they are, you know. And I'd be like, whoa. But it was pretty much the live commercially available just that record that kind of turned me on them i really got a the moby dick was crazy the no quarter and then i went back and i started listening to the records do you know what i mean sure so that's kind of how it went i was so i actually sort of was sucked into it by listening to that song remains the same on vinyl and just you know listen how they interplayed and how bonham was just you know he's just really has a really it's funny i know people say you know um ginger baker used to say <laughs> the the late ginger baker uh, you know, that bottom couldn't swing a sack of shit. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, he 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 really could. I mean, now, the accurate statement might be he probably couldn't play jazz to save his, or, you know, jazz proper. Like, he couldn't sound and be like, ding, 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 bump, maybe. But he didn't like jazz so much, I think. But he could swing. I mean, he could swing definitely better than Ginger Baker could. I mean, if you listen to, you know, there's some clips of Ginger Baker playing jazz where it's all right. In the early 60s, when he was coming up in London, the jazz they were playing there, you know, he was probably, from what they were used to listening to, he was probably great, you know what I mean? So he got to be known as this jazz drummer that went into Korean, you know. But Bonham really has just a, a way about his playing where he swings kind of everything in a certain way, but he also ha has the ability to um, to hold the time... <sighs> It's hard to explain. Like he, he, a lot of drum, drummers, like all right, like a lot of younger drummers today. I ask them, like students I've had, so if I say, when you listen to the first thirty seconds of when the levee breaks, you know, you can hear it in there. The tempo moves a little. It slows down a little at points and stuff. But since I'm on the other, like most people, kind of who really started listening to music in the radio by the time, especially the maybe people born in maybe 1985 and after maybe 1982 and after all the music they would mod that they would, that would be new to them was all uh, edited together heavily via a click track or straight up quantized. So I wonder how the younger kids today, when they hear that stuff, if it sounds like it's totally fucked up or if they feel the, the music, the musicness of it, do you know what I'm saying? And that's a whole thing I've put in videos that I've talked about the concept of like perfect time. I mean, if you're a pop band or an electronic band or something, by default, given the nature of the style, you, you probably want perfect metronomic time, you know. But I hear all these stories like engineers, like they're in the studio and producers and the, and the band comes in like, oh, great song. What's the BPM? And they're like, oh, it's uh, 86. All right, great. And they put that right in. Well, 
you don't want a bad performance. I mean, you don't want to give anybody an excuse for playing like shit, but you know, there are, you know, human beings are, you know, we're, we're analog, you know, so even, you know, there are, is something to be said, you know, sometimes in verses generally in, in the music, we've become, you know, familiar with the verses, you might pull back a little in the choruses, you might just pick up a teeny bit, but all that stuff is really, um, you know, for lack of a, it's organic, but I don't know. I, I just, um, I have been trying to be a proponent of, of people to, you know, practice by all means to metronomes, make sure you can, you know, do meter and certain things and you're able to play things consistently at certain speeds and stuff. But, but I'm hoping sort of the trend comes back to like recorded music and stuff where people really learn to rely on their individual sense of time because, you know, the dimension of slightly speeding up or slowing down, it's, a, it's, it's actually one of the ingredients we have in music, just like pitches or um, timbre or, you know, whatever the hell you're playing on or, or loudness or softness, you know, I don't even know how the hell I got off on that tangent. <laughs> no, I love it, man. Did you, so do you, do you have confirmation that they normally never played with the click? You, well, I think the, well, you know, the funny thing is, is the click, I, I would say from listening to it, I think the only thing conceivably that would resemble a click track in Led Zeppelinville would be in the middle part of whole lot of love. Where, where that hi-hat's going, I think what probably happened was they might have looped that. Maybe, you know what I mean? Like, I think that was record. Like, have you ever heard, like, Moby Dick? Um, if you listen when they recorded Moby Dick, uh, the studio version, when you hear that intro, you know, da 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 they recorded the intro and the outro at one studio, and then at another studio, they recorded the solo. Mm, okay. Then they just, you know what I mean? So they were able to edit. I mean, Jimmy Page was the ma- was the master of editing. You know, he, he was really good at, you know, cobbling stuff together. But I'd be fairly certain that I don't think any, I mean, well, absolutely no quantization, obviously. You know, they really didn't happen until the late, late 90s. But I don't think there's anything where he was listening to a click track at all. I think that, you know, bands like that, sometimes they used to make click tracks in the sense that, like, to keep it together. Like, I think, like, um, Ramble On. Do you know the song Ramble On? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know how during the song you hear the like that noise? It's like yeah. bottom, like a guitar case or something. I think stuff like that used to happen all the time, just as the band. So if they were going to track a song that the drums were going to come in on, the drummer would play something that they'd hear in their headphone that they'd be playing along to, but you just wouldn't hear it in the final mix. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, so totally. I think that, that concept of a click track where he was the metro maybe while they were playing but I don't think there's any artificial. I don't think there's any um, any click track in, in in Zeppelin. I think what used to happen with click tracks and stuff was back in the '50s, when they would be scoring movies. Somehow it had to. They would use the click track to line up the audio sync with the video with the film sync. Do you know what I mean? So it yeah. wasn't necessarily they felt the drummer had shit time or the band had <laughs> shit time. But I think what started to happen too is the mindset in the '60s. That of songs, you know, not wanting to speed up or slow down at least too much. But the fact of the matter is if a drummer needs a click track to play well, they're not going to be good enough to play with the click track well, kind of. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, kind of the, the whole style of a lot of younger drummers today, it's a chops fest, which is I admire the hell out of it. But it's almost like they just put on, it's like, it's almost like, do you ever take karate? I didn't. My brother did, but... Okay, karate, they have things called katas, right? So for like 30 seconds, like a dance where you do this and you do that. So you practice these certain movements. 
it's almost like in drums now, there's like, okay, well, check this one out. You go singles and a paradiddle to the hi-hat and to the, to the bass drum. And then you, that lasts like a bar long, and people practice that till they get really good at it, and then they, they can loop in it, and loop it. And then sometimes when they're playing songs and stuff, they almost think of it like, okay, I'm going to throw that pre-programmed fill in as opposed to playing right from your viscera. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm sure there's many many younger drummers that that's not true where they do play from their viscera, but those things just come out, you know. But um, it does seem like in a certain way that drumming anyway has really almost become more like a um, like a musical yoga to like a click track. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like it's really like. No, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, at NAM, this is kind of going on what you were saying with with like you know their pre-programmed fills. At NAM, we have drummers come and sit down at our booth and all that stuff, and it's so crazy how how many of them have their. I learned this on blank.com for five seconds, and then they go into a groove and they fall apart. And you're like, yeah. you're not actually like you're missing the whole point. Well, you know, and that, that, you know, the funny thing is that is the whole point. Like it's, it's like when you drumming is if you're sitting there and everyone's playing a song and you don't have a guitar and you're you're just clapping your hands, that's what drumming is. But wait, let me set that bass drum up. You know, that's what you're doing. You know, I mean, if, um, and that's the thing I never really understood about, about like, I remember when I sort of first was introduced with like the concept of like, of like digital like I, when digital recording came in, I remember way back in the day, they used to have ADAT tapes. Okay, yeah. super, They almost look like video cassettes. Mm-hmm. So it was tape, but it was stored via you know zeros and ones. And then I remember Pro Tools came out, and there was a guy that we had worked with at a studio in Chicago who became familiar with Pro Tools real early. And they used to joke around, they call him Pro Tulius, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. And he flew out to California and made a lot of money in the early days when Pro Tools first came out. And he was telling me about all kinds of like auto-tune things. Like they have to sign contracts if like person X can't sing and those types of things. Mm. Like they have the pravy duty. They're like, we'll sue you, you know. And um, But I remember going in and sort of sitting down there were tracking something. And he's like, Terry, would you come in? I want you to play drums on something. He's like, I kind of play, but I, you know, I. So he went in and he played. And it was like, doom, da da doom, bada boom, boom. And I was like, well, this I mean, it sounds kind of rudimentary, but it sounds it sounds a little weird, but it sounds solid. He goes, well, that be, that's because I quantized it. And I was like, oh, and that was the first time. That was probably 99, maybe. And I think in those days, there was a time you could manually quantize. Mm-hmm. Like, I know you can still do, do it now if you really need to. But now it's pretty much plug and play, I guess. But, you know, you really hear it. Like, it's like um, perfect time when it comes to certain soundscapes and certain chords and, and part of the thing is, this is why I said before to like younger kids, I started, if you listen to certain Zeppelin songs, or especially Stone songs, and you hear the tempo get all funky, you, does it sound good, bad, or sloppy? But it could also be said that people like me, or maybe people like you, that when we grew up in an era where it wasn't perfect, we just got we just got used to that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like people could say that, well, you're just, somebody might, a valid argument, well, whether or not it's ultimately valid, but they could certainly say in a court of law, like, listen, dinosaur. You know, you're just fucking used to shit sounding like shit. And somebody could say that, you know, but I'm fairly certain that if you were to do something where you and I'm dead serious about this. I saw a an experiment years and years ago where they had a bunch of plants in a, you know, like probably what would be like a hydroponic room, you know, except they, yeah. they were just, you know, plants and uh, they blasted <laughs> heavy metal from the speakers at it. And it was like thrash metal, like so. It was, I'm sure they were playing to a click and stuff. And after a few days, the plants 
started to lean away from the speakers and they started to kind of shrivel up and, and not do all that well. But then what they did was then they started playing like it wasn't so much whether it was a, a sequenced or not or click tracked or not, but like softer, like um, the Eagles and stuff or like, God, what did they actually play? Like Jim Croce or something. And the plants actually started to lean toward it. So it's almost like in the universe, it's almost like um, because music, I think, affects people so viscerally that sometimes it, and I'm talking about an extremely exact for the songs, five minutes where it's exactly going to be 73 beats per you know minute the whole time. And if the song is kind of a, like, well, if you have like a loop of chorus where it's like, we're really happy in happy chords, we're really happy in, you might not notice if it's perfect time. Do you know what I mean? But if yeah. you start making little transitions from like happy, happy, then we get kind of minory. I think that at times like that, the tempo is is a useful tool to, to you know, to, to very slightly make transitions into things like that. And again, it's very subtle and it's very small. Um, like it doesn't have to be a, a major retard or, 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 or I don't even know the terms they use, retardando or allegro or whatever the fuck. I, I mean, I remember those terms from years ago. Yeah. But um, I don't know. But that's the thing kind of about Zeppelin, though, is that Zeppelin almost seemed to have – it's not – and again, it's not necessarily even just the sound of Bonham's drums, but it's definitely the way that he – it's almost like he was the conductor of Zeppelin. Sure. Playing a drum set, you know, where he was up there like this but playing – and I even theorize sometimes, I wonder if it's possible sometimes with Bonham, because I want to do this, in my, like I want to do it in my own music anyway, just because I'm one person, I can't play instruments. What I was going to do is I was going to play, and I'm still going to do this, I'm going to make up songs, so I'm going to record the drums and make up a song on the spot as I play it for five minutes. And it's going to be a song in the sense, it won't necessarily have a chorus and a bridge, that type of thing, but it'll be just like five minutes of music. So then I'm going to go back and I'm going to overdub what I sang and then overdub it again, overdub it again. And then once I have that basics, it's almost like a click track, a melodic click track that I sang. I then can have actual instruments overdubbed and then keep the original drum tape. But I wonder if sometimes when Zeppelin used to record stuff, if Bonham used to just go in and play it by himself. And then if the guys would just overdub their stuff on it. Like, I don't think that really actually happened, but that's almost kind of what it's like. You, you feel like um, when Bonham comes in sometimes, he starts playing the drums, almost always he'll come in and he's very slightly dragging, but it doesn't sound like he's dragging. And two things happen. He's not too extreme, but also too Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones play exactly to him. Like, if you listen to, like, guest spots of Bonham playing, like, there's that um, Beware My Love, like that... Um, have you heard the Beware My Love, um, Paul McCartney? No, I didn't know they ever played together. Okay, I'm not a huge, I love the Beatles, and yeah. I love Paul McCartney stuff in the Beatles. I'm not a huge Paul McCartney solo guy. There's sort of like a, sort of a happy sort of way, and he always uses the same sort of, it's just not my cup. He needed the darkness of George and John, for sure. Well, well, exactly, right. It was the yin and the yang. It was a yeah. great balance until it got all fucked up. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but if you listen to the song, Beware My Love, the, the popular version that's on records, I think, is a different drummer. But Bonham went, went in to Abbey Road one time, I think it was, and played on a few uh, Paul McCartney things. And Beware My Love is one of them. And if you listen to Bonham playing underneath them, it's totally Bonham, and it pretty much just sounds like Achilles' last stand. It's the same kind of, even though this is, I think, recorded before they did Presence, before they did Achilles. But you can sort of hear the musicians he's playing with aren't really used to him. So there's a couple little points where they miss sync. 
But you can bet if you were to isolate Bonham's drums, it would have sounded great. You know what I mean? Sure. Hey, y'all. I wanted to... (laughs) I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by 5.5 snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three-position strainer, 42-strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with the drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye but yeah, now you were talking too about like like if you like you thought the best theme about this podcast would be us getting into to slightly digging below the surface a little as opposed to just when the levee breaks, school in the rain, uh, you know, in my t- whatever in my time of dying, stairway to heaven, right? Yeah, just the little shite, you know. But I, yeah, I mean, but it's funny with Zep. There's just a there's just a way about it, like, um, and I've never heard it. I've just never really heard that type of. You know, it's funny. It's it's almost like some people get it and some people don't. But there's a like years and years ago, I used to buy and sell musical. Like I used to, you know, in the days before the Internet, before like drum, uh, vintage drum got kind of popular and hip and cool and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, I got into sort of collecting drums sort of by accident. I, I had I learned on a, uh, in the early 80s, I had this old. Um, Japanese kit that was painted black. I don't even know what the manufacturer was. And then I needed a kit to play because I was going to kind of start playing with some bands. So I'm like, well, I better have an actual kit that I could. So I bought a Pearl Export set, which was so it was probably like a mid 80s Pearl Export set. You know, in the 80s, they had all had the long logs. It was one of those. Yep. And then uh, the early 90s rolled around. And I can't remember what I was, what was I watching? I was watching some show where they, there was an old, old Ludwig Green Sparkle kit that this guy was playing. And I remember being like, oh, kind of like, you know, Bonham's old Green Sparkles, you know, because I'd have all the books and I'd look at them. And, um, but I never, even because of Zeppelin or anything all through the 80s or the Who or whatever I was listening to at the time, I never, I never really had the fetish to go out and buy one of those kits. To me, I was like, you know, um, but then what happened was, is so I decided to, in Chicago, there was a paper and every, you know, it was like an ad paper, you know, where you could buy and sell shit. It was called Trading Times. 
And um, in the early mid eighties, man, people were like every, all the drummers in the late seventies, early eighties were making the switch from American drums to Japanese drums. So they were selling all their Ludwig, Rogers, Slingerland, Camco, and they were buying all their Tama, Pearl, uh, Yamaha. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's so you you would see. I mean, pages of pages. I remember looking in this thing and like Rogers, Red Onyx, Rogers, Swivel, and they were giving it away. And um, I'm telling you, man, I wish I'd kept even just a couple of those. For, they'd be worth money just the paper. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Show you like, oh my God, somebody's selling. You'd see it say like a matching Dynasonic. I mean, $500 Zildjian symbol, you know, and this is a $1982, man. So like 160 bucks today. So, um, but anyway, so what happened was I saw that and I'm like, you know, I'm going to get my, my, my hands on an, on an old drum set. So I went out for the first time in a long time. I hadn't really picked up a trade in times since about 87 or eight. So I went out, this was 92, maybe. And I picked up a train times. I was looking through it. And I'm like, wow, there's not as much old cool stuff in here, but there's a few things, you know. And I saw this lady was selling a Ludwig drum set, $350. Or this person was selling it. So I called her. She was an old lady. She was well, maybe 70, 75. Her husband had passed away about 15 years, 20 years before. Her, I remember her name. Her name was Josephine Alangi. And she's like, you know what? She's like, I just got around to being able to sell these now. Uh-huh. Like she didn't want to sell them, you know. Uh-huh. So uh, I went and I looked, and it was a, a 22, 13, 16 um, uh, Blue Oyster Pearl. So Ringo, but blue. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, superphonic, uh, hi-hats were old 15-inch, like, f- transition stamp. You'd call them now zillions. Yeah. The ride was a 20-inch 602. Like, uh, uh, it was probably, like, maybe, like, 1,920 gram. The crash was an old Zildjian. There were all kinds of cowbells and temple blocks and shit and all kinds of stuff. And um, so I said, listen, I said, here's the 350. I'm going to send you some more money. I got home and I sent her a check for like 400 bucks or something because I knew in those days, you knew what that shit went for, you know? Yeah. Um, so what happened was is then after I got that, I was like, that was kind of cool. You know what I mean? I I, uh, I ended up selling the symbols off. I'm like, well, I just sold all those symbols for like $400 and I'm only like $200 or $300. Now, what did I end up in the end paying her for it? I might have given her three fifty, and to be honest, it might have just been another three hundred dollars. I mean, at the time, I didn't have much money, you know. <laughs> there wasn't the internet that it was liquid. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Throw it on reverb, you know. You had, literally had to like freaking, you know, move it. And uh, <laughs> so, but then after that, I, I then I found an old Red Sparkle Club date, and then I found this, and so then I befriended this collector who said You're down south. You know, talk like this, Terry's like, what you got to do? He goes, put an ad in the paper, put an old drummer seeks old drums. And so I did. And then, man, the calls you, people would call you a stuff. Um, and it was great because, you know, you'd find stuff that people were selling. You didn't have to go out and look for it. There'd be a bummer sometimes, though, because you talk to somebody, you'd be like, what's the finish like? And they'd say, well, it's this kind of this swirly thing. They tell you they're Ludwig on the So you drive two and a half hours and you get there. And it was a hunk of shit, you know, piece of shit set that had a, a Ludwig bass drum hat on the front of it. Yeah. But you won some and you lost some, you know. But that was kind of the way to do it, you know. That's um, anyway. So when that happened, I, I started getting into the the drums, into buying and selling. And where I was going with it was when I would then buy and sell from people who were musicians. I started talking. You know, eventually I'd start talking about Zeppelin. And they'd be like, oh, my God, you know, and we'd start talking it like you'd be like, yeah, on this record with Bonham. Oh, my God, when he does this. So you talk about Madison Square. And I realized, I'm like, God, there's a whole lot of people out there that are really like almost like as crazy as I am with Zeppelin. 
like all kind of, like all the time. So then it dawned on me when I started doing the YouTube videos that a lot of those people seem to find the channel. So like a lot of, you know, there's a huge like John Bonham Zeppelin and it even goes with Jimmy Page Zeppelin and John, you know, there's just a huge thing to Zeppelin. Watch. It turns out to be that the guys did make a pact with the devil and then, you know, they always talk about, you know, Zeppelin made a pact with the devil and that's why everybody's attracted to it. But there's just there's just really, a, for lack of a better word, a, really a true mojo with Zeppelin that really seems to really center on Bonham. Because, you know, if you listen to Jimmy Page playing with other bands, it doesn't sound Zeppelin-y. You know, the chords kind of do because it's Jimmy Page's, you know, he, he has those, you know, strange chords and the tunings he likes. And then, you know, John Paul Jones, too. But Bonham really sort of was almost like a um, almost like a Wagnerian Germanic drummer. You know, like real, like almost bombastic, but bombastic in a in a really sort of clever way. Like one thing Bonham never did is he never overdid anything. I agree. Like hear, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in every Zeppelin, at least record. Like live, you'll hear him overdo a couple things, but it sounds cool because they're killing. Yeah, it's live, it. yeah. But in studio versions, if you think to almost every Led Zeppelin song, there's always one little fill or one little thing Bonham does that's just so cool. Do you know what I mean? Like God, you know, that's really, and he doesn't overdo it, and it's. Um, and so I do always try to talk to people about, you know, like like it's hard to sort of pinpoint the, pinpoint the exact record you want to give somebody to sort of get into Zeppelin. But, you know, I don't know. So that I guess where I was going with all the buying, the buying and selling stuff was just that I realized there were a lot of diehard bottom Zeppelinites out there. Why do you think people are so obsessed with his gear so much? Like it's, that's just as much of a thing about his playing is like what was he using? Well, that's a damn good point. And I think part of the thing is, is that you get with Bonham um, is the way he tuned a snare drum. Mm -hmm. Bonham had a way of tuning a snare drum, kind of whatever drum it was. Like when you listen to the first record, from what I, there's no pictures taken there, but I understand it's a five by 14 superphonic. You know what I mean? But it's still, but the way he played, like he used rim shots and he'd get the snare wires to where they would just be, you know, they they weren't super duper tight. Um, he'd use a tone control. But, you know, you bring up something that to this day I've been kind of trying to answer. But the thing is, is even I'm that guy. Like I was always interested in the gear. And the, my big thing now interest with Zeppelin now is kind of like, where is his gear now? Like one thing I'd love to do would be able to put together like a documentary. You know, we fly to England and we start like, you know, well, well there's a rumor that here in this easy high, you know, you could almost make like a, a Monty Python kind of joke out of it, but still be still really possibly fine. That would be very successful, by the way. <laughs> it would, you know what I mean? But yeah, that, that really seems to be the gear. And I think, so, or, or the question, I think so much of it really is the sound Bonham got. And you know, people's nature is, oh, that's the sound. Well, it must be the gear. You know what I mean? Oh, and if it wasn't the snare drum, what, you know, Eddie Kramer, for the love of God, what mics were you using? And Eddie Kramer's all the time, he always says the same thing. And they're like, listen, you know, Bonham played the way he did. You know, it wouldn't have made a difference if I had, you know, U87 in the corner as opposed to AKG or whatever the frick it was, you know. But you bring up – there there are a lot of very similar things like with with Zeppelin. Like I don't know what the thing is with the gear so much. I I just don't know how that's happened. I think part of the thing is with Zeppelin is there's – now with the internet, since the internet's really come up in the past 20 years, there's a lot more pictures and clips that are showing up. But, you know, up until like, you know, the year 2000, man, you know, it, it, pictures and live clips and stuff of Zeppelin were, were really hard to find. You know, I just don't know. You know, that that's actually a really interesting 
that's probably one of the most interesting, concretely interesting things, at least that a non-Zeppelin person would even be interested in listening to a conversation of, like, what is so important about the gear? Well, because you can think of a million other, like, there's U2, there's there's Rolling Stones, there's other bands that are massive. They're, those drummers are awesome and thought yeah. of great parts, changed the game in a lot of ways. But no one really talks about, I mean, we know Charlie Watts has the same Gretsch kit and they have their own stories, but... Bonham, and maybe it's because he's not with us anymore that there's that level of finality to like he's not still producing stuff, so you want to study it. No one, yeah, no one talks about gear like they do about Bonham. Maybe Ringo, but even that, no. Even that, the only it seems like the only people that remotely approach Bonham and the people being so you know inquisitive about the gear is um, like you said, Ringo, Stuart Copeland. Pretty sure. Good. Yeah. Yep. Like, you know, remember that snare of mysterious providence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a spread snare. And then Keith Moon, too, a little, you know. But it, sure. But it really is. You're right. I mean, but those those columns would be this big. Ringo's would be a little bigger and Copeland's would be a little bigger. But, you know, Bonham's would stretch the ceiling. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's, totally. You know, so that that's a damn good question. That That is actually at one point. It'd be nice if you maybe interviewed me and George. Do you know George that you've seen? I would love that. I, I looked him up after you suggested him, but yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. The funny thing about George is I have to tell you about George. This freaking guy, I year, 25 years ago I met him. I bought a snare stand from, from him that I still actually have, which I'm gonna, I should give back to him. I should just give it back. <laughs> but it's a sonar snare stand, and it's like an old like horse link, like 1971 it's probably made out of like magnesium. What do they say? Manganese steel, and you, know, you could probably throw it in a, in salt water. Probably wouldn't even rust. It weighs a thousand pounds, and it, there's all kinds of levers and shit on it. And um, but the neat thing about it is, is the feet. The three feet are retractable, like you'd see on bass drum spurs. So if you want, it can sit on its rubber legs. But if you want, you can screw the rubber things up, and the spike comes out. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and the reason why I bought it was because at the time I was playing Moby Dick. And the thing is, when you're playing, you know, with your hands like that, you know, I didn't realize at the time that Bonham, you know, he used to set, they used to set his drums up on a big, huge cardboard, it was, not cardboard, uh, plywood, probably uh, uh, thicker than, it must have been freaking three quarters or more even, where then they would drill holes into, because he'd set it up the exact same every time. So that so even the cymbal stands wouldn't have the rubber feet. They they'd slots. They'd fit right. So even if you hit it, it wouldn't move. So when you play with your hands, like the snare, it bounces. You know what I mean? Like like the like if you start playing hard with your hands, the floor tom will start moving away from you, or the snare might even start moving away from you, even tip over. Yeah, you got to get used to doing it. Um, but anyway, so I brought this snare stand from God twenty five years ago. And George. God love him, man. He's we're pretty much about the same age, but he's a flat. He started playing drums when he was like four. His dad was a jazz drummer. His dad, he and his dad got his dad really encouraged him to get into like Zeppelin and stuff. So he's like a died in the wool Zeppelin guy, card carrying Zeppelin. I'd probably from the time he was nine. And um, so what happened was he, he then got into jazz drums too, and then he studied drums. I don't know if he went if he studied straight up at college for it, but he took lessons from some diehards. And uh, and he's like he, George is like a, 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 a renowned. I mean, if there's probably a list of, um, let me put it this way: if a jazz if, if a jazz person was going to come into Chicago with their guy, and the guy or gal or whomever got sick, George, would, I'm sure, be in the top three who would get called. Oh wow! Okay, John, can you do it? Bill, can you do it? George, I mean, he's he's 
he and you know he played that um he met jimmy page and and uh robert plant and john paul jones do you remember when they were um the kennedy center honor honors back in 2012 obama mm-hmm. was there and they got like awards and stuff well, the reception ball afterward, George was in the house, was in the was in the big band playing. So he got to run around and like talk to those guys, you know. Oh my God! But so what happened was, anyway, long story short, I bought the stand from when I met him. It was it was all like cat, and you know it was all jazz. You know, hey man, you know you love this stand. You know these cat. You know it was real like jazz lingoy, and I was such a candy ass. I was playing, you know, just jamming and playing with a couple bands, you know. And I felt, you know, I'm like, well, thanks, man, you know. So some years went by, and I think I saw him once out. I'm like, dude, I know, hey, what's going on? How's that scenario? Good, you know. But about four years ago, I forget what happened. George probably stumbled upon, he was probably looking up some Zeppelin on YouTube, and sure enough, he probably saw me like this, and he's probably like, who's this freaking Jamoke, you know? And he looks up, he's like, I know that guy. I recognize that guy. So we watched some of the videos, and then he sent me an email. I was like, Terry, it's George, and, and I, you know, well, yeah, we stopped the snare stand, blah, blah, blah. So finally, I, I said, well, listen, man, if you ever get a chance, you got to come over. I have, you know, the drums in the basement. I got all kinds of gear and shit if you're looking for anything. He's like, absolutely. So one day he came over. Remember, he came in and he brought, what did he bring? He brought a couple things. He brought some Pisces. Terry, check these out and stuff. You know, it's like going to be a geek day. So I'm like, why don't you sit down at the drums, you know? Now, here's the thing. A couple things. There are, there are a lot of times, whether he's a jazz drummer or whomever, like they're a great drummer or known as a drummer, but they go down to play Zeppelin. And like you and a lot of people know, it's kind of a different animal. It is. It sound anything like Bonham, even though it might be in good time and it's the same stuff he's playing. It just doesn't sound like it. Or especially if they're a jazz drummer, sometimes if they play any rock, it sounds really unbalanced. Like the bass drum isn't like this. It's not real heavy. There's sort of a, a sort of a little yeah. different. It's, it sounds physically quieter. Fucking George goes and he sits down at the drums. He looks at me. And I forgot what he started playing first. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this is the fucking reincarnation. I'm telling you, this freaking guy, George Flutus, can play exactly like Bonham. The touch, the fills, the technique. Not only that, this he can tune. When George Flutus makes a video on a song from the album Presence, he'll tune the drums because Bonham would have slightly different tunings, and sometimes they'd be in a really ambient room, and sometimes they might not be. He would literally make the he can make the drums, not just the snare or the toms or the bass drum, sound as close as possible to the recording and mix proper. I don't know how the fuck he does it, and he is really one of the only people. He's the only person. It takes me a little while to tune my snare drum Bonham style. Um, George will sit down on anybody's snare drum within two or three minutes. It will sound like Bonham snare drum. And I told him he could have a business, man. You could say, you know, send me your snare drum, pay for shipping there and back and 50 bucks. I'll tune your snare drum just like Bonham and I'll freaking mail it back to you. It, it's just amazing how um, how he pulls it off. Uh, and plus, he, I mean, God, he knows uh, 10 times more about Bonham's history, about Zeppelin's history. You could be talking to him. He'd be like, yeah, that show from 72, you know, in Copenhagen, you know, and the third song where Bonham, you know, you know, when you talk to a sports person. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, you know, Mickey Rogers back in 53 when he batted 376. And somebody's like, yeah, man, the following year, Floyd Cott. You're like, dudes, who gives a shit? But sure. he, but with Zeppelin, you and me, we'd eat it up. But he's like that, man. He's heard every bootleg a thousand times. I mean, really, man, if you put a freaking, I'm telling you, really, with George, it sounds like Bonham. It's like Men in Black. 
where he pulls the skin off that guy and he shoves sure, yeah. the alien. It's that's George, man. At some point, you got to have him on too. It's, Definitely, and I'm sure Ginger Baker would still say that George can't swing either. So, <laughs> oh my God, it's, but yeah, but you'd love. Him. But yeah, so I. But there's a couple interesting things too, where you hear. See, I think there's a fair amount of drummers and musicians that aren't Bonham or even Zeppelin, precisely for the thing we were talking about before, because they've only heard the seven songs here all the time. Mm-hmm. Immigrant songs, Stairway to Heaven, uh, uh, Rock and Roll, Fool in the Rain. You know what I mean? Um, but if you really listen to Zeppelin stuff. Uh, your your uh, other musicians, especially drummers, would would really I think learn to appreciate if they listen. You know, if they really sit and listen. Again, it's the the technical facility, especially as it relates to those days. Like nowadays, a lot of people consider a lot of technique when you do like um, you know, you string sort of together those doubles and you know, like even like drummers been playing three or four years now are able to get like those drop catch three notes, like you know, which is I can't. I I I try. Um, but you know, like in those, like Bonham really, the way he played was, you can tell that he was, I don't know how many lessons he ever had, but you can tell there were like five rudiments that he really, really, you can tell he played all the time and he'd always bring into the music. And that was like the paradiddle, the double paradiddle, the paradiddle diddle, um, well, the single stroke and the buzz, but he, and he also had sort of a, um, so paradiddle, it was like a double paradiddle diddle kind of thing. Where he did be nine notes, so one two three four five six seven eight nine one two three four five six seven eight nine one two three one two three. So you'd go, so a paradiddle diddle would be right left right right left left right. So mm-hmm. one and a uh, two and a, uh, but you go right left right right left right right left left. So you put a, a right left right before a paradiddle diddle, and you play that fast around the drums, and that's so much of the cool shit Bonham's doing at the you know the Royal Albert Hall when you see him do Moby Dick. Yeah, you know, and he's sitting there. He's behind his maple trunk. That's a, that's one of the fills he's doing, and um, and it, it really is amazing. And that's why you know somebody like George. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why George can pull it off is because George has that straight up old school technical proficiency. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and Bonham used to also do this freaking thing too. I don't know how the hell he used to do a thing. He'd play double strokes. But he'd play them real lightly, like he'd almost kind of like barely touch the head. And he'd play them so fast. It was French grip style. And and they sound like buzz rolls. And you don't hear it much later, but you hear it. um, You hear it on the first record. You hear it all over like live recordings from like 69 and 70. But it's a real fast single stroke roll that sounds like a buzz. So it's like. You know, and I used to always, and, and people, there'd be time people, I talk about videos and I remember there was this guy and I looked him up. He had a, he, he was a, he had a few videos, but he was like a kind of a renowned in, in Europe somewhere. He's a jazz drummer. And he's like, sorry, you know, Terry, you're mistaken. Those are buzz rolls. And I, and I didn't realize, you know, so what I did was, is I said, well, listen, if you go back and you look at some of these clips, like the Danish TV, you know, they're playing in, uh, like March of 68 or the super show right around that time or, um, and you can see Bonham, you can actually see him do it, man. And this guy sent me an email back. He's like, man, he's like, I, he's like, I thought you were foolish. He's like, you're right, man. I don't know how this freaking guy could do it. And a lot of people can play those singles real fast, but mm-hmm. he had the ability to sort of pull them out, of, like to sort of play where like, like it almost seems like he could have done that same thing on pillows. 
Yeah. I mean, like he didn't even necessarily really seem to need the rebound so much, but it was really like, but it was just so fast. And the impact, you didn't really hear the impact of the head. You, it almost made the snare wire just go. I don't know how the fuck he did it. <laughs> Does he have, I mean, I haven't seen, but are there any videos of him just like, Hey, I'm Bonham. Hey, I'm Bonham. Uh, this is how I hold a stick. Like, does he have any like technique videos ever? Not, no, not that we know. I mean, somebody might unearth one, you know, where he's like, he's like, Hey Jason, this is how, but you know, the thing is it, it, I, one thing about the gear and the, see, part of the thing is, is with Jimmy page, Jimmy page is, is very intelligent. He's, he's, he knows like supply. Like, I mean, I think part of the gig you know, I've always been begging him and other people like if he could you, know, you ever seen that book about the, the Beatles. There was a um, uh, somebody that worked at, at uh, EMI that worked at Abbey Road that was sick. I think they had cancer and they were going through treatment. So the EMI people were like, listen, man, don't you, you can come in here. We're going to pay you one way or the other. You don't even have to come in if you don't want. You don't have to work here. You can just ask around the studio whatever you want to do. So what he did was he, he asked if he could go through all the Beatles tapes because, you know, remember in those days, man, they used to um, they they used to, you know, record. I mean, the, a lot of these bands with tapes, sometimes they do like 100 takes of a song. And sometimes they'd say, all right, well, let's take the first 30 seconds of take 28. And then the next 40 seconds from take 40. You know, in a band like that, you know, the musicianship, like with Ringo, so it's really good. There's not really there's not going to be any tempo issues. You know what I mean? I'm sure it was the same bottom, too. And um so he went through and he, you know, he wrote a book like, okay, well, this song, you know, they recorded these tracks, these tracks this day. Um, they made a, they made, what did they used to call the, uh, a reduction? They call it a reduction now when they would take the three or four takes and they put it, and then that would be the master take. Oh, okay. And I always say, wouldn't it be great if somebody could do it with Zeppelin stuff, you know? Um, but I think there's a reason, you know, Jimmy Page wasn't a huge fan of like the press, so there weren't a whole lot of articles and stuff. And, but I think part, there, was, there certainly is a mystique of Led Zeppelin whether it's, you know, Jimmy's production style and, and capabilities or Bonham's equipment or that, you know, that I think Jimmy Page really knowingly keeps going. And God love him. You know what I mean? Um, I think he really, you know, the, the more mystery to it, cause there's mystery to it, you know, like you're kind of like, God, how the frick did they get that sound? Or, um, and I'm sure Jimmy Page had a lot of techniques that he, I think sometimes they'd track stuff and then they'd slow it down a little and then he might retract the guitars and the bass or play. You know what I mean? So I think there's a fair, a relatively good amount of Led Zeppelin stuff where the drums you're hearing, well, maybe not, not out of their whole catalog, but definitely on like um, Zeppelin 2 and Zeppelin and like Houses of the Holy and maybe some stuff on 4 and where the drums, you know, on the tape machine, you can just slow the tape machine down a little bit. And with the drums, it'll just, it'll be, you know, each discrete note, instead of just being like a little mound like this, the slower you get, it fattens it. So like, okay. bah, becomes, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. the sound up. I think that was a, a little, some of the secrets to sometimes bottoms, the sound they get on some stuff, you know, maybe like the crunch and, um, but anyway, as it goes to bottom, no, there's, there, I, I think something that'd be great that Jimmy Page would be able to do if he could go back and find all the, um, like at least for the song remains the same, you know, they shot footage, uh, at Baltimore before they did those three New York shows. Plus at New York, there's all kinds of, you know, I'm sure they had all kinds of film footage of cameras that might just happen with Ben Bonham on this part or on that part. 
-hmm. because there's just so very few clips of where you can really see bottom for an extended period of time. Um, the, the, the stuff from 75 at, uh, at Earl's court there is, but that was videotaped. So I don't think there's a dedicated, I think what they recorded was what the director had fed into the main feed. So the only thing they have is like, if you see Bonham playing days confused and there's six points in that tape where you see him play something, you can't go back and get the bottom feed you know what I mean? I think what was recorded was the yeah the, yeah the main thing they had in the house. You know, sure. Well, the song remains the same. There's got to be all kinds of strings of footage. Oh, there has that, to be, yeah. But you know what I mean. So, but it would be really great because the funny thing about Bonham when he plays, he not and like you'll see some stuff from Nebworth, you know, where he's playing. Like there's some pretty good stuff from Nebworth. Nebworth, but again, it goes back to Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. Uh, the Danish TV is great because there's pretty much all of them the whole time, more or less. There's some close-ups of, uh, you know, but you see Bonham kind of the whole time. But it's funny, the way he played, he didn't look like he was playing what you were hearing. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, sort of a weird way kind of of sitting, and he held the sticks, seemed to hold them pretty, you know, further up on he the He chokes stick. up for sure, yeah. He choked up a lot, and... But it's just really interesting. And, and what's funny about it is with, with the, the funny thing, a, a sort of a neat after effect of the bottom thing is it does seem to really bring – I mean there is like a bottom club, man. Mm-hmm. You know I'm saying? I mean there are diehard bottom Zeppelinites. Like I joke around the videos. I say, man, we could fill Madison Square Garden. But we probably freaking could. You know what I mean? You get like a 10-hour day. Everybody's in there. They get all busted up. You get all these – Elon Rubik, get him in there. You know, you get George in there. I'd be, I'd love to go. You know, we get all of us in there, and we just, you know, go up there and just talk bottom stuff and, and play and just go berserker. Um, try to find his freaking gear. You know, find him <laughs> at all these drums and cymbals. You know, we try to get Jason Bottom on board to, to oh, go yeah. because <laughs> it really is. It's so funny. Like I said back when I was talking about the collecting days. You know, I talk. It's almost like you find yourself almost talking to like like it's like the exact same. Like you can say to them. Yeah, like the snare drum sound. They're like, yeah, and, and they just know it is really. It's really like a. Um, it's just amazing, you know. And George, you know, to my friend Bob, who I call Peisty Bob, who's a you know he's a drummer, <laughs> a keyboard player, and a bass player. He's a huge Zildjian. I'm sorry, Peisty and cymbal collector, and has all kinds of cymbals. He'd probably write a book on him. But again, man, you can just talk. Time like stands still. You can start talking about Zeppelin. Suddenly, it's three hours later. You're like, oh my god. But yeah, man, so I – now, before I was going to say, when you had mentioned that maybe we could talk about maybe some slightly more obscure stuff. Yeah, I actually have them in, in front of me if you want to oh, just I, go yeah, through them. Totally yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool, uh, before, before we get into the actual songs, do you know off – I mean, I've seen this meme go around where it's like a quote, and it might not be Bonham, just like there's a bunch of quotes that are like John Lennon supposedly said. But um, with John oh, Bonham, yeah. it was like, people that don't take care of their gear piss me off, and – I've seen it attributed to him so much, but do you know personally if if he was a gearhead or if he just happened to be this dude that just did it right and people obsess over? Well, I don't I don't know if he was necessarily a gearhead in the sense that, you know, he might let's say if you were to talk to like Cozy Powell or something, be like, hey man, you know, what do you think you see the slurlins that come out now they blow or something like that. But I do know that he was very they do say he was very careful with his gear. Like I remember um reading an article or a book, again, this is way before the internet, where John Paul Jones was talking about how, you know, he, he'd lovingly see John, uh, John Bonham washing his cymbals in soap and water. And um, 
there is an interesting thing too that Bob Peisty Bob had pointed out to me. <laughs> I love There's Peisty clip, Bob. <laughs> I swear to God, he's a great guy too. And he, uh, where where it's a clip of where they go to Scandinavia, and I'm not sure what year it is. If it's '72, maybe. There's an interesting clip there where you see the promoter sitting with Richard Cole, and Richard and 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 the promoter opens the briefcase to show Richard Cole all the money they're about to pay. Cole freaks out and he slams it shut. Like, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really interesting stuff, but they show the band come in, they're coming off the plane and they're sort of in the terminal at the airport and Bonham walks up and you can actually hear him say, Hey, you know, somebody stole one of my symbols. <laughs> <laughs> like you hear him say that he's like a mit, or I forget how he says, he's like, I'm missing one of my symbols, but I think he was pretty careful. Like I do think, um, in the bottom book, his brother, I think Mick Bonham, who the late McBonham wrote a book about his brother. I do think he talks about there too, where Bonham was really, you know, he wasn't a Keith Moon trash the stuff kind of guy. I think he was very respectful of his, his, his instrument, you know. You know, Copeland was one of those guys who, you know, he, he played Tom and stuff. You know, he, he didn't destroy his stuff, but he could, you know, I remember reading an article from like 1980 where he's like, uh, they're like, all right, well, Stuart Cole, you know, tell us what you're playing now. He's like, well, we're playing all Peisty now, you know, because he, he played Zildjian, the Zildjian he'd have on the kid too. And, um, and he's like, I think my drums are, uh, I think they're wonder stars or like lovely. Like he doesn't even, you know, <laughs> imperial star, superstar, some whatever star, he calls them wonder stars. But, you know, there's a lot of drummers that are like that. Like Neil Peart, I remember reading a, an article where he was, somebody had asked him in like the modern drummer, they, well, they still have modern drummer, but they, I don't know if they do anymore. I haven't really seen much of it, but they, they used to have a thing where you could ask questions to drummers like about their gear. And he had asked a question about Neil Peart's, like his symbols. Oh, I really love your cymbal sound here and there and there. And Neil Peart replies, like, listen, he's like, I all I know is, is I just uh, I tell Zildjian, I say I want a you know a couple bigger ones, a couple you know, and they send them to him. He's like, I couldn't tell you. He's like, I don't know if it's like a heavy crash or a thin crash. That's you know this was, and so that article might have been eighty two. 83. So there's a fair amount of musicians, at least drummers, that are like that. I mean, I think sometimes with drums, plus I mean, there's so many you know things with it. Like with the guitar, you're going to have a lot more gearheads with guitars and basses and keyboards because it's the one thing they're kind of going to have. That amp, you know what I mean? But yeah, Neil Peart was like that. Uh, I think there's a fair amount of drummers that are like that too. Like they'll always say, I don't know, the round and I hit them, you know what I mean? But that is interesting about Bonham. There was, um, and, and I want to say it might have been the same book or article I read. There was a time two years ago, and I haven't been able to find it, even with the internet, where um, John Paul Jones was talking about how Bonham used to cut up newspaper and put it in his bass drum. And, um, you know, when I when we look at that picture of George, you know, George and I have obsessed over it as is Peisty Bob. There's a picture of them set up at Olympic when they're working on like Zeppelin II or three, I forgot, and, and, and the maple thermos are set up. It's got to be early, though, because there's only one floor time there, which it looks like the 18. And um, you, it looks like, if you look at the bass drum, it looks like, you know, with light coming through that, there is like some either crumpled or cut up newspaper sitting in there. And I want to say that that was something that I think was done uh, was done by drummers, I mean, in general, because I want to say in all my collecting years, I even want to say that that drum set, I was telling you the drum set about the Josephine Alonji, you know, that first vintage kit I bought. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there was newspaper in that, about that far up in it. You know what I mean? I've done one session with the, with the engineer that in the house kit. It was that. I haven't seen it since then, but I've I've definitely heard of it for sure. Well, it, it almost makes it like a soft gate. Like if there's, if there's, in the sense that like if you have a strip or tape on it, it's like, doo, 
But when you have newspaper in there, when it strikes, the newspaper is going to move a little bit. So mm-hmm. you get a little bit of resonance. And then when the newspaper settles, it puts the, the, the kibosh on it. You know, so it's like, boom. you know what I mean? Versus sure. You know what I'm saying? Unless you have a, a busload of newspaper there. <laughs> but yeah, so, but I think it was the same article where John Paul Jones talked about the newspaper and also talked about him uh, washing his symbols with soap in the bathtub. That's what he said. Bathtub, probably the first tour. We probably took it, you know, because the funny thing is, I used to always, you know, say, say well, you know, Bonham must have always tuned that drum himself just to get that consistency of sound. Like, I don't even know if you could really teach, a, you know, like a roadie or something to do that. And uh, and the funny thing is, there's a really telling photograph of uh, from 1975 where Bonham, I'm sure you've probably seen it, where his, his, one of his roadies or his roadie, I don't know if it's Mick Hinton or who the hell it is, but he's standing there and he's wearing one of the, you know, the movie A Clockwork Orange? Yeah. Um, he's wearing like the Droog outfit and he's holding the snare drum up for bottom, bottom is sticks. It's before the show, and he's like testing the drum out to make sure it sounds just so, you know. So I do think Bonham was very much a hands-on. Um, a lot of drums will just like you know, Neil, a lot, they'll just show up and play, whatever. But I think Bonham, you know, his drums would be set up, and but he'd probably sit and he'd really go over everything because um, it really is amazing the consistency, really, of like Bonham's, you know, sound. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you really listen, you know, listen to the first record and you listen to, you know, it's a lot of it is the fact that that snare drum, it is an aluminum, you know, it's a Ludlow Ludwig, like your superphonic back there. And it is a rim shot and the snares are on there just so, and you know, the tone control, you know, I used to see him play with the tone. Like there's a cool thing when I used to listen to like Song of Mains the Same and stuff, his snare drum always sounded so ringy when they get to Moby Dick and, um, you know, just not necessarily ringy, but just more open, you know. Uh, you know, it sounded just a lot, it lasted longer each strike, you know, and there's an interesting thing. One of the first things I noticed about the Royal Albert Hall footage was right before or right after Moby Dick, you see his hand come around and you can see him start asking with the tone control. Mm. It's either turning it, he's either putting it back on for after Moby Dick or he's undoing it before Moby Dick, but you can really hear that. I mean, it's pretty, um, like, it's interesting, like with, um, Alex Van Halen, you know, he really loved those six and a half by 14 Supras. And while he really, really, uh, um, taped up, he used to put a lot of gaffers tape on the top head. Tuning is very, I think like the pitch of the heads, apart from maybe how much the, the top head is muffled is very similar to bottoms too. It might not be as high as bottoms, but, but anyway, I, I'm still sort of ringing from that. It is interesting. Like what is the big deal about the gear that, that even, even in and of itself would be a good book, man. You could kill two birds with one You could talk about the gear proper, but then you could almost talk about like what drives people to be so interested in the gear that this freaking guy played for eleven years. You know what I mean? There, there's like no second runner-up. I mean, the second runner-up I think would be Stuart Copeland, mm-hmm. but again, and that and he's still alive. Like if he wasn't alive and no one knew where his gear was, it would probably be the same thing. But but yeah, it's head and shoulders, miles above the rest. I. uh it just really is interesting, and especially as more time goes by. Like George and I were invited to go see uh, Jason Bonham play. Uh, they they played it like a, a play in Indiana a year and a half ago. It was last year, the year before. Okay. So we drove out over there and saw it, and 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 they had as the Jimmy Page that Jimmy Sakurai. Do you know Jimmy Sakurai? I don't know him. Uh, or of him, he he's a Japanese, uh, a fella, a musician 
who really, really loves Zeppelin, really loves Jimmy Page stuff, and he, he's just like the guru of Jimmy Page. You know, mm-hmm. he's probably like his idol and everything. And, um, but so Sakurai was playing with, uh, with, with Jason Bond. And what had happened was, is I, I had originally, a few months or a year or something before, I had sent a video uh, to, um, not even, it might have been just a few months, of George playing Moby Dick. So I sent it, well, God, what did, what did I, I can't remember what I said. I can't remember what I, I sent him a few videos. I think I sent him a video of me playing Moby Dick, maybe a video of George playing. I, I to be honest, I can't remember. But <laughs> what happened was, is I got an email back from, from, um, uh, Sakurai. He, he was, man, his jaw was, he was like, you got to put me in touch with this George. You know what I mean? So George then got the backstage pass. And I think George was like, listen, man. I'm not coming unless this guy comes. We both went. <laughs> but anyway, the cool thing was is we, we got to meet Sakurai after the show, but we thought for sure we'd be able to meet Jason Bonham. But what happened was is that whole show, it was interesting watching Jason Bonham play because he kept going like this and he kept like grabbing his arms and stuff. And I thought he was having a heart attack or something. Yeah. And uh, let more like he played less and less fills and, and less and less aggressively. I guess he wasn't feeling good, so he went home. But man, if George and I could have gotten his ear just for like five minutes, I thought we would have had him in the bag. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like, Jason, you got to take us back to freaking Birmingham, man. We're going to start rifling through all the closets and, and storage rooms that your, your dad had, you know, your mom and dad had over there. I've always wondered what, I mean, because that has to kind of be, he, he's embraced it and jumped into that way for sure. But Jason, you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Because he is a really good drummer. I mean, he's he's great. But, but he doesn't always... actually play like his old man, though. Exactly. But what I'm saying is like he yeah. kind of lives in – he's he definitely lives in the shadow. His last name's Bonham. So it's like he's never yeah. going to be Jason without the immediate thought of John's son. Um, well, you know, you're right about that. You're right about that. Um, uh, you know, I th- But the interesting thing is I remember reading an article on Jason Bonham because I remember he sort of came in the early eighties, early mid eighties, he had a band called Bonham, right? Mm, okay. I think it was called Bonham. And, um, but you could, you know, you could tell the way he played, he didn't play anything like his, like the feel or the fills or anything, but he would come out and say, he's like, you know, I want to be known for, for my own guy, you know, which is totally, that's cool as hell, you know? Um, but I think like, like, you know, like you said, there came a time maybe about seven or eight years ago, I think, where he, you know, he did go back and really start looking at kind of, you know, what his dad did. Like, I remember him talking about uh, in an article, maybe Modern Drummer or something, or I can remember it was a video article, he was talking about how, like, people asked him how he counted the intro to rock and roll. He's like, well, I don't know, you just go one, two, three, four, and you play it, and then you add the three eighth notes. And that's the way everybody else used to play it before you realized that it was, it came in on, like, the end of three. Yep. You know what I mean? Which is where those eighth notes go. And, yeah. you know, but even he didn't know, you know, and it's interesting to even hear him talk like he like I read another article where he's talking about it's like, yeah. And at the end of um, Trampled Underfoot, my dad very briefly goes to the ride symbol and then back to the hat. Little things like that that he noticed, you know, which, of course, I know, you know, there's everybody. But he noticed that, too, you know, as he went back and started to sort of peruse all his dad's stuff, you know. So but yeah, even now, though, even. You know, and that's part of the thing, like with Sakurai, I'm telling you, man, I, uh, whew, man, if you get, if you got Jimmy Sakurai in the same room with George, that's what I was telling George. I'm like, you get George and, and this guy Pete they have. So they, they, they will sit and they will play, uh, they'll cover Led Zeppelin studio songs. But what they also do too, 
is they'll play like a, um, let's call it like a 1972 version of Immigrant Song. So like live. So George has heard, they, all three of these guys have heard probably every recorded live version bootleg of Immigrant Song. So George might tell the guys Ivan and Pete and say, listen, so what we're going to do here, do you remember that thing where when they were in Helsinki and they did this? Yes. Remember that thing when they were in Berlin and they did this? Yeah. That thing in Tampa? Okay. He's like, I'm going to play one. I'm going to play one like that and I'll talk you through it. So then George goes, sits behind his freaking drums by himself with no music and will literally, like I was saying that maybe Bonham did possibly when they tracked and sit and play for seven minutes or five minutes, just the drums with this thing going in his head. So then he'll send that track off to, to Ivan or to Pete, Pete probably first with the bass and say, all right, listen here. So, you know, Pete, what I did was, is that, you know, like the one, four, three mark, I'm doing, you know, the four bars there like they did in Tampa. So by the time Pete's done, put, puts his bass over it and Ivan puts his guitar over it, you listen to it. It sounds like a really good bootleg from a show you never heard. And there's two things that are amazing about it is not just the fact that they can play it, but even the, fa the, the manner in which they went through the machinery to get this done. George just played it in his head, made a few notes to uh, Ivan and, and Pete and Pete just, you know, laid the stuff on top. You got to hear it, man. If you get a chance, type in PFOZ immigrant song. And it's like, it's just crazy. It's, it sounds like a really, really good, almost like stu a bored studio mix of Zeppelin just jam. There's no vocals. Okay. You know? But it's just out of hand, man. And again, like I said before, with George Toon and the drum set, it's just crazy. It really is. It's just out of hand. But, uh, but if you got Sakurai, though, if you got Sakurai on guitar, and got George on drums and Pete on bass, man, you could take that around the country, man. And you get a club that might hold 500 people, and you're going to sit and you're going to jam Zeppelin all night, but you get a bunch of Zeppelin Bonham fans in there. You could do like questions asked, and somebody might say, hey, what are the, you know, and you, so you could sit and almost have like a, a John Bonham, Jimmy Page Zeppelin fest with music and chat. Man. You'd rake in the cash, I think, because somebody might say, hey, man, can you play that one part from and then they just even bust into a minute of one of the songs. It'd be great to watch. So uh, but anyway, going back to I was talking about Sakurai, that was going to be our, our 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 doorway into possibly getting to, to Jason Bond. You know what I mean? But again, that didn't happen. You know, it would be. And I got to tell you, still sitting here, man, I'm still thinking to myself that the whole concept of what makes Bonham's gear so freaking important, like. For years and years, <clears throat> it's funny, whenever I, you know, I'd always look at the, you know, the pictures of like the Thermogloss kit, the Maple kit, or the Green Sparkle kit, or the Amber kit, or the Stainless Steel, in almost every photograph of the Thermo kit, it just looked like the bass drum was a little, was deeper. Like whenever you saw pictures of the, uh, I mean, the Stainless or the Amber or the Green Sparkle, it always looked like a 14 by 26. A 14 by 26 looks, you can just tell if, if it's a little deeper or it's very tuna canny. It, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Exactly. Tuna canny. And uh, that's a damn way to put it. But there was just always something about the thermogloss. And I used to chalk it up sometimes in this photo. It's techniques they use now intentionally or unintentionally. Or sometimes, you know, they'll squash the photograph a little bit. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like you'll see um, everything just looks a little fatter kind of. And I just, I ended up just chalking it to that. But I remember in the early two thousands, probably 01 or 02, I stumbled upon, I found out that Paul Thompson had Bonham's thermoglasses. So I found out Paul Thompson, the drummer for um, Roxy Music. So I sent him, he had this website, which he probably still has, where you could send him messages. 
I said, hi, Paul, my name's Terry, I'm in Chicago. Just curious about, you know, Bonham's kit you have. And the question I asked him, I said, can you, cause I assumed that, well, maybe one was 26 by 14 and one was 26 by 16. So then I figured maybe sometimes he'd be out, he'd have the 16 inch depth and other times he'd have, cause there were some pictures kind of where it kind of did look more tuna canny. And, uh, and but I said, are they the same depth? I, I thought it'd be rude for me to ask him to measure them, you know, cause if he didn't know how to measure them, he'd, he might have to take the, you know, that kind of shit. Yeah. So yeah. Said, the same depth. He said, yes. So that was the question I asked him. So I sort of blew my load and asking him that. That was sort of it. So <laughs> in videos, I used to talk about, I used to always say then, you know, those bass rooms got to be 16 inches deep, you know? So I, you know, I, I mean, I have videos where I play it up, you know, the mystery of bottoms, you know, 16 inch deep thermoglass bass drum. But what finally ended up happening was, is there's this fella, Billy Harrington, who I just met that George, I, I re met recently, super nice guy, a great drummer. Um, he he uh, he wrote that article. There was an article in Modern Drummer about a year ago. He went. He caught. He got a hold of Paul Thompson. Said, "Look, because he had to go to England for something." So he's like, "Do you mind if I come down or come over there and interview you about take pictures of this kit?" And Paul Thompson's like, "Fine." So uh, Billy Harrington goes over there and interviews and talks with Paul Thompson. Takes a bunch of pictures of the drums, and sure enough, the bass drum measures 15 inches deep. It's not 14, and it's not 16. So. And apparently what happened was, and this is funny, what happened was, is apparently Carmine Apice, or Carmine Apice, or Apicere, however you say his name. Yeah, exactly. Uh, used to play years ago, uh, he had a leady bass drum, I guess, when he was growing up, that I think was 15 inches deep for some reason. And um, so when he ordered his drums from Ludwig, ordered the bass drums to be 15 inches deep as opposed to 14 or 16. And in those days, in the 60s up through the early 70s even, a 16-inch deep bass drum was really rare. Um, I think Louis Belson used to get 16 or 18 or 20 inch deep bass drum, but it was unusual, you know, they, by almost by law, every bass drum up until the mid early mid seventies was probably 14 inch deep, you know? And, uh, but so, but, and of course the story goes that Carmine Apice, and which is truth, hooked Bonham up with an endorsement from Ludwig and they pretty much gave, uh, Bonham an exact replica of a of a Carmine set, except that Carmine had a 12 by 15 inch rack tom, and Bonham ordered a 12 by 14, so it was this a 14 inch diameter. But then, of course, got the same depth bass drums. You know, probably without even I mean, Bonham himself probably didn't even notice. You know, yeah. And uh, so they turned out to be 15 inch depth, which I'll tell you, man, thank God somebody got to the bottom of it because I was pulling my hair out. But you know, <laughs> and I mean, you know, semi tongue in cheek. But uh, but the funny thing is is that Carmine himself, somebody, we, we, we posted a discussion on Facebook that the there's no way that the bait, we're like, look, those bass rooms are definitely not 14 inches deep. And I always made, I always said they were 16 because I never, you know, that'd almost be like calling a fender in a certain way and saying, listen, I, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want an 18 inch speaker. Can I have an 18 and a half? No, hundred percent. Like, well, yeah. They will give you a 19 or a 20, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I didn't even think that that's what they could do. So, uh, but we were talking about it and Carmine Apice commented on what George and I were saying and said something along the lines of, now this might sound a little more mean spirited than it, than it actually was, but something like, yeah, that guy doesn't know what he was talking about. Of course they were 14 inches deep, something like that. But of course it turns out that it was 15 and not only that it was 15 because it was Carmine's were 15. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Carmine, uh, um, from the interviews I've seen, he definitely... I mean, I'm recording this, so I maybe should 
could uh, bite my tongue, but he definitely has his little ego about him. I mean, he, he every time someone mentions the Bonham triplets, he's like, you know, I'm the one that showed Bonham that when they opened up for us. He's, I think anything Bonham, Carmine has a little bit of like, that little punk would be nothing without me kind of vibe. Oh, well, you know what? And I think, you know what? And it's funny you say that because I notice it, that seemed to really be the case in like the early 80s. As the 80s kind of went into the 90s, he was very, very much like that. I did notice as time went on, though, he did seem to kind of start toning it down a little bit. Um, but, you know, in all fairness to Carmine, Carmine, he, you know, he's a great drummer and he he really, um, you know, he's really entertaining to watch. And there were a lot of there were certain things that, that um, you know, Bonham did copy from him, like, you know, the, like choking the cymbal and things like that. Um but, you know, maybe the stick twirl. Uh, of course, Carmine, you got it from somebody else, too. Sure. Um, but that that is funny, though, that you do, you know, there totally is that, like, like you said, like, you know, Bonham would have been, you know, nothing without me. You know what I mean? And uh, but, yeah, you, you do. Although I will say, again, in recent years, it seems like he's toned that down. You know, so, I mean, not to take anything. I mean, blood, um, blood sweat and tears. I always say that 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 was the name of the Vanilla Fudge. The Vanilla yes, Fudge. Yeah, I mean, they were they were an ass kicking band, man. You know, you had Carmine there, and you had that bass player, and that. And it's always funny. You ever watch the footage of Vanilla Fudge playing? And you always see the keyboard guy, like he 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 almost <laughs> looks like he's like um like a cartoon a little. You the know, one time I wish we were releasing video at this. Oh my god, <laughs> a very cool dance. Just but then. that that's what it, you got to watch it, man. And they were all, they were super talented, man. They kicked ass, you know? Well, wasn't uh, that the first, uh, the U.S. tour that Zeppelin did was opening up for them? Yeah. That's yeah. where all this came from? Okay, cool. Yeah, and I think that there might have been a little later in that year, 69 too, that they weren't necessarily on the bill with Vanilla Fudge proper every show, but I think there were other times that they did open too. Like, I know there was a time, by the time August, I think, rolled around a 69 and it's one of the only times where you see Bonham's double bass set up. Like I think there were about well, at least four or five gigs. I think where Bonham in the summer of '69 did actually on stage set up two bass drums, mm. which I think then you'll hear the story. You know, John Paul Jones I think relates the story where like after about three or four of the gigs or whatever, uh, somebody you know they put it like oh you know Bonham it's or John it's okay you know you can do with one foot what most people can do with two. But I think really what it was I think like. The guys, you know, thought he was really busying it up. So, like, you know, buddy, you got to lose the other bass drum. Yeah. But there's a clip from the same show where somebody took a picture of Bonham behind his drums and a picture then of uh, Carmine a piece behind his drums. And you can tell it's the same venue. You can see lights and stuff in the background where they look identical, except that you can tell the difference that Carmine's rack time is a 15. Um, and somebody else was talking about how they knew a roadie from one of those shows was like, you know, Jesus, you know, why are we going to now change the, they're the exact same freaking drum set. You know, why do you, know what I mean? Disassemble Zeppelins and then put up vanilla fudges or bites. Well, by that time, I think by, by summer, well, of course, I think by the time summer rolled around that the fudge would have been opening up for Zeppelin. Yeah. I mean, I think it it was only the first tour, I think, like literally from like freaking December to maybe March. Sure open in anything you know what i mean otherwise i think they were just like they were closing you know yeah 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 but um but yeah man it's just you know it, it, i still i i the, the thing about the gear that's really sticking with me i never really <laughs> you know thought of it that way even with like with people with their guitars and stuff the bottom there's definitely a documentary to be made 
Oh, 100 percent. Well, I mean, just with the success of your YouTube channel, I mean, a lot of what you do is just, you know, in a lot of different videos, you're using different variations of drums. And I'm sure that's part of the appeal of your of your videos are what's he using today? Oh, is that what Bono you, or Bonzo used and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's it's crazy. But yeah, I would say maybe it's because you can't ask him those questions and because he never really talked about him or did like a, hey, I'm John Bonham. Here's the gear I'm using, you know, like some that the fact that you don't have access to that stuff is why, you know, well, and kind of like your story too, the guy saying it was, you know, the same size and you find out, well, like Carmine who should know says it's 14, but you swear it's not, you find out it's 15. I think it's, you want to talk to other gearheads about it. Cause you're like, well, what did you hear? This is what I heard. <laughs> totally and it's just, yeah. that's fun. Yeah, well, right. It's like, the, it's like the, uh, it's like the gab. The yeah. gab, you know, and it's uh, and it's just interesting because then you start getting crazy. You're like, oh, well, maybe that day when they built those drum sets, the maybe that uh, uh, the lugs, maybe whatever, you know, because the lug, it, it just, you know, because you could tell the difference between the lugs, like where the where the you sure. know, P, uh, you know, sixteen, the cymbal mount thing is. It just looked deeper. The, you could just tell it was a, a bigger space between where the lugs came in, you know? And but so thank God for Billy flying over there and putting an end to that, man. God love him. So he got that piece published in, in Modern Drummer, which is really nice. And That's he's awesome. a damn nice guy too, man. You should interview him too. Sure, sure. Um, so did you want to, do you want to hop in on those, uh, on those five songs? Yeah, yeah, let's pop those in and we'll see. <laughs> um, so let's see. The first yeah. one is going to be the song, um, I'm going to crawl. And this is okay. the last track off Through the Outdoor, or in Through the Outdoor, sorry, which is uh, from 1979. Is that the last album of new songs? I mean, minus Coda, we'll talk about later, but was that their last yeah, album? That, that was the last record they did, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so yeah, what what about that song do you think has some Bonzo-isms? Well, you can hear Bonham in there. I'm going to crawl. It's really tasty because it's... In a certain way, it's a, it's a lot like to me a lot like um, even though it's nineteen well seventy eight I guess when they were recording it it's a lot like the way he played in like sixty nine and seventy you know it's a, it's very similar you know obviously it'll kind of like uh, you know T for one in a certain way or, or since I've been loving you and he and he employs a lot again a lot of like those roles again whether it's a, a fine really finely played single stroke role or a, or a buzz role and he also does a, a thing where it's like boom. Boom, but boom, but that, that. And I'm not really sure how he's playing. There's just little things that Bonham will do in your life. And it's simple, but it sounds really cool. And it fits the exact spot of the song perfectly. And you're like, God, you know, what did he play there? And again, then you have to rely on other people. You know, well, I think he was doing this. Or I think he was doing this. And again, it only lasts three seconds. It's not something sure. he did 15 times. And that's part of the appeal of it, too, with I'm Gonna Crawl. One of my favorite Zeppelin tunes. You know what I mean? Yeah, because that the 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 groove itself is pretty. Um, I don't want to say elementary, but it's those little things that he does. Like um, he does those little, two little triplet ghost notes going into the downbeat. Just yeah, to have yeah. that little bit of flair. And yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of hits. I think it's around. I have a few notes on it. Around three forty, where he's just kind of hitting with the guitar. And that is such a that song oh, is a good, na, 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 yeah na, na, yeah 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 where he's just so good about keeping something simple, but then when it needs to have that impact, I mean he's yeah. just he doesn't do it every time he just exactly. does it. that song he might do it just twice, but there yeah it's it's always like just enough and it's never too much, and uh, and then some of those you know right after the ba na 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 da da boom ba boom boom boom. You know what I mean? He does that roll right in. 
And again, you're not sure if he's doing, cause he would do buzzes sometimes. You can see like at Robert Hall and stuff when he's kind of doing, you know, like the whipped cream buzz rolls, you know, but, but he also, you know, you can see him clearly in the early days doing those, man, you got to check that. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, Ben, if you check that out and you're like, Oh yeah, there it is. They're just single stroke rolls that it's like just the, you know, and the sticks are, the sticks are, you know, they're going like this, but really fast. And it's just like the very end of that. It just very slightly hits the drum. It's it's just it sounds like butter, man. I, and even George, George can kind of do it. You know, George is if 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 you know George is like yeah, he's like I really he, he's like, I can give you my best rendition of it. You know, but that's something that I think somebody. It's almost like somebody. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of drummers that probably could do it if they want, maybe tried. But there might be something to have to do with the way their hands are or something. Like it might almost be like a quirk. Sure. To get that done because I've seen people that can play fast french rolls and i ask them to do it and they're like they, they can do it but they just can't do it lightly did john have a famous teacher or is, is it a well-known guy he studied with prior to joining the yardbirds and like all, all that stuff well the, the, people always talk about in like a book or an article that there was one particular drummer who recalls taking lessons with him uh that they interviewed or something and then, and then there's another, you know, who could tell you this is Billy Harrington. Cause Bill, Billy really has done a lot of his homework. George could too, you know, a lot of these real early, like a lot of those kind of Zeppelin geeky things in my mind, cause I'm 50 now is stuff that was so fresh in my mind when I was 12. And now I kind of can't remember, but I, but I think he's, what was the name? George, like Alcock or something. Let me look that up. There was a, a drummer. I think that he briefly studied with. And while you're looking that up, the reason why I ask is because at such a young age, John, especially with, you know, Good Times, Bad Times, the first song on the very first record, he is such a good master of the ergonomics of how to use your body to get the most out of your drums. Oh, yeah, you yeah. You know, like he had to know how the mechanics of your foot works to get those fast little bass drum flutters. To, to have that knowledge is, I mean, maybe he just knew it and it just worked and you got a quirk like you were saying, but. Yeah, some people just have little quirks and they're able to just do certain things, which technically that if they took lessons earlier, they'd have been discouraged from doing. Exactly. That's doing a great it. point. Um, but yeah, okay. I got the drummer. <laughs> His name's Gary <laughs> Alcock. <laughs> I thought it was yeah. Yeah, okay. so, yeah, I'll see <laughs> And now we're five years Alcock, old, but that's yeah. awesome. But, but yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, but anyway, so Gary Alcock, and I guess what he says is, uh, you know, there's a couple, it says, John Bonham struck up a friendship with fellow drummer who lived nearby called Gary Alcock, who might have had some influence. So you can find some of this stuff on okay. like some bottom pages and stuff. Um, but I mean, I would say almost certainly that Bonham would have had, I think it's very, very seldom that you ever have a drummer, especially with how fast Bonham came along. Who, who was so good kind of so soon, I, I'm sure there were there were teachers in there. Yeah. Uh, because if you really had to totally with this pair of stick go through trial and error to get certain things so fluid, I don't think that that really could happen. I mean, I'm sure it could happen. I mean, it, conceivably it could. I mean, um, but um, but again, with like, you know, Bonham, when you really listen to a lot of that stuff, like Moby Dick and the early Moby Dicks, you know, solos and stuff, where Bonham, you really hear him rely heavily on uh, paradiddle diddles and paradiddles and singles and, 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 and doubles and stuff. And he does, it's almost like he, you know, cause they, they always used to say, and I guess it's still hell. Like when I used to read these Zeppelin books when we were kids, it's like, well, you know, Bonham got his first snare. They used to always say he got his first drum 
gave him a, his parents gave him a snare drum at 10, and then he got his first drum set when he was 16. So when you think about that, you're like, all right, so Bonham was 16 in 1965, or 64, right? So you'd have been 16 and 64. So you're telling me, so if he got his first drum set in 1964, but in 1968, four and a half, four years or four and a half years later, he's playing like that on these records? That's pretty intense, man. Yes. But it's cool to say, though, that if he, in fact, did have a snare drum, let's say between the time, let's say that, what would it be if you're 10, 58 to 64, and he was maybe that whole time just practicing like old school, straight up, you know, not like Radham McHugh's and stuff or Lesson 25 or whatever, but was really doing a lot of paradiddles, double paradiddles, paradiddle diddles, uh, singles, buzzes, you know, that type, maybe flam, Swiss mm -hmm. trip or whatever. I mean, that's what it really seems like maybe for, you know, 10, you know, whatever it was, six years. That's maybe he really, really just did. And then when he got the drum set, really was like, well, I'm going to do those rudiments around the toms and stuff. Because when you really watch those those Moby Dicks, that's really what he's, if you really watch him, he's just kind of doing rudiments and very tastefully, you know, not just haphazard, you know, but around the drums, that's kind of like the whole vibe of Bonham. And, um, and again, what I call that thing, the Bonham engine, I couldn't think of another word to put it. I guess it, I, I just, it came where, you know, when you hit with your, you're doing singles with your hand, your arm. So right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. Well, simultaneously, you're doing singles with your foot, but you're doing left, right, left, right, left, right. Mm -hmm. So your right hand is hitting at the same time as your hi hat. If you had two bass drums, it would be your left bass drum, right? And then if your left arm hit the, you know, hit whatever you're hitting, and then your right foot hit. So it's a cross thing, you know, like when you run. You know, when you're running or you're walking, when your right arm is out, your left leg is out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So just for like the, so really the bottom engine is how you'd almost be running, sitting at a drum set. You know what I mean? And I was, really was going to ask you about that because I've seen on your videos the, the Bonham engine. So, so, um, but yeah, I, I just, you know, but to see the thing about the Bonham engine is the thing that I love so much about it. I'll tell you, man, it's a, you sit and you play the Bonham engine pretty fast for five minutes, man, I'll bet you burn some calories, bro. Serious. Because, you know, when people are on the pre-course and they're going like this, what, what is that a pre-core where you're doing this with your arms or whatever? And your legs are going up and down. That's really what the bottom engine is, man. <laughs> I was talking to my friend Ryan at Ludwig. I'm like, I, I want to make some videos. I was going to make like a joke video where I set the drums up up here. And maybe I dress up. And it's so funny. I was going to dress up actually like um, Richard Simmons. Remember Richard Simmons? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I was going to put a big wig on. And I was to take like a sock or something and stick it. You know, and be like, hi, everybody. You know, <laughs> come out and dance around. And then sit and do the bottom engine and sweat my ass off and be like, but it's so funny. We were out to dinner just like two or three months ago. And my wife, we, we have this th these friends, uh, Mitch and his wife, uh, Janae. And it was funny because we're at dinner and she starts talking about that because I, I would talk about how, um, you know, I, I you could, you know, market a drum set as like a health device, not just physical, but also mental. You know, it's, you know, drums have been around five, you know, 50,000 years or whatever. Yep. And it's so funny. She said the same thing. She's like, you should dress up, you know, like Richard said. And I thought to myself, like, man, I could make some <laughs> This shit might work. I hope to God you actually do that. <laughs> all right. So oh, that was, that was, um, I love all the tangents we're going on. Like, seriously, I love it. Uh, yeah, but that, that was, no, no, that, that was, the, I'm going to crawl uh, from In Through the Outdoor. Number two is In the Light, which is track seven off Physical Graffiti. And that was released 1975. Um, you know, the, the neat thing about that song is, is that sort of in a certain way in the light sort of 
starts to sort of pre in a certain way, it's almost like a predecessor of sort of like in through the outdoor, you know, because I mean, that synthesizer that's on there and stuff. Um, but what Bonham specifically with Bonham, it, that's a classic, classic physical graffiti uh, drum sound like that room. Boom, boom, boom. But when you hear the way that Bonham will sort of play over the bar a little. Oh, yes. So, so he'll be like, you know what I mean? Um, that's very Bonds. When he doesn't do it, he doesn't beat it to death a thousand times. But he also does something interesting in there, which is classic Bonham, where Bonham, like he almost breaks up the, like, even though the pulse of the tune is going, it's almost like if, uh, God, there's, it's hard for me to describe this. I'm try, I always try to figure out a, be, a better way to describe it. Do you know, like, like in very heavy music, very heavy, like Wagnerian German music, like, you know, sometimes in that in that musical culture, they, they want to surprise you and shock you. That's kind of the whole thing. Like, you know, like when you watch those German TV shows, sometimes and they're wearing like leather and everything's, you know, so like uh, like sprockets, like so uh, like Stefan from like Saturday Night Live. Yes, yes. The German way about stuff, you know. <laughs> but it's almost like Bonham's drumming in a certain way had like that kind of a general mojo. Um, but there's a fill he does like, but um, boom, 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 boom. And he like intentionally comes out of it just a teeny bit early to make it almost sound like something's falling down. You know, when something falls down a flight of stairs and if it, it might almost sound musical for a minute, like boom, 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 boom. But at the very end, it goes boom, 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 like that. Oh, yeah. Bonham actually reproduces that on the drum. It's really interesting. That's a classic bottom thing to do, too. And then when he comes back in on the crash, he's right on the downbeat. So it's not necessarily really something that's even rushed. And he like he either intentionally does it from beginning to end or, or realizes it's you just really have to hear it. I wish I could give you a, mi a mile marker on it on the time. It occurs on almost like right before the fade out. But, yeah, that, that is a great example of, uh, of of at least one particular era of bottom sound which is really the physical graffiti sound. You know, you hear that on In My Time of Dying. You, you hear it on In the Light. Uh, you know, you hear it on, um, uh, on on pretty much. But there is some stuff on physical graffiti that I think are holdovers from earlier records. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, uh, Down by the Seaside and um, Houses of the Holy, the song and stuff like that. But there really is just like a big, what, what is the name of the house? Um, Hadley Grange. They used to go to Hadley Grange and they'd record there, you know, where they did like, uh, you know, when the levee breaks. And that, yeah, that big hall. Yeah, that big hall. You know, and I think I, it's funny. The funny thing about that, <clears throat> it, it, whenever I used to listen to Misty Mountain Hop, <clears throat> as well as when the levee breaks, I can't help but think that Misty Mountain Hop was also recorded in that same stairwell. If you kind of listen to it, you know, it, it uh, there's just some because, you know, the. Even though the and this happens all the time in the Bonzolian videos that I'll put, you know, people say, you know, Terry, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, they all that ambience came from the stairway. You know, there were there aren't any effects on it. And I'm like, well, there are, you know, there's a they're heavily compressed and they used a, a thing like a, they used what do they call it, a Binson, um, an echo rack or something. So there is like a tape. It's a tape delay. You know, they used to call it like a, um, you know, the head, the record head and the play head are here. Right. Mm hmm. Like they used, like I think somebody at Abbey Road, I think originally developed it for the Beatles to give them like to thicken up the, you know what I mean? So it'll record and then immediately play back real close 
Um, so you get less, so instead of having to physically double your vocal, you just, it's just, it's the one vocal and everything. And just slightly, that's where that delay comes from. Sure. But they used to do it with a tape. And uh, although I think maybe the Binson might've had a, I don't know if there was a tape in it, if it was like a spring or something, but, but, uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's, uh, people always would be like, so then what I finally did is I found a page online where you hear Eddie Kramer, not Eddie Kramer, Andy Johns talking about what he did. So I would just sometimes just copy and paste the whole 18 paragraphs or whatever. And then the reply in a Bonds only video, I just hit paste to be like, here it is, you know. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you have that that Headley Grange era and that song in the light really sh- kind of showcases. I think it's one of the best sounding, cleanest sounding of that physical graffiti room. Uh, in, in addition to the drum, you know, the fills that he puts on there and playing over the bar and stuff. Yeah, and there's also the... Um... The way he, uh, it, depending on how, how you're counting it, it's either the the E of two or the and of three, depending on if you're double counting. But he does that do tap boom, where he has that hit right after the the backbeat. Oh yeah, that uh, is a very Bonham thing to do. Oh totally, totally. Um, that is a very Bonhamy thing to do because he does it like in um, Over the Hills and Far Away, and in Cashmere too, right? The tap boom, tap boom. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a huge, yeah, that is a huge bottom thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of ideas I'll have for Bonzolium that I'll be like laying in bed one night and I'll be laying there like, oh my God, that's a great idea. I should do it. And then I'd have forgot. Or other times George and I'll be making videos. We'll be doing stuff at his place or here. And I'll think, oh, we should make a video on this or that. And then I forgot. But that's a really good one. Or, or like, or, or like you can have, obviously have a, you can have videos on like bottom specific fills. And then like light fills or, or, you know, there's like just little teeny things, you know, he does like um, that, that people eat up and people know people like diehard Zeppelin people will instantly recognize like, like, oh, my God, I remember when he does that. And like in um, like he used to love doing a thing with his hi hat, like like you hear it like an all my love. You know, all my love off that same record where it's like, boom, you know, like it's like it starts the second verse. He you. He leads it with an open hi-hat close. He yeah. used to do stuff like that, mostly live. You almost never heard it. Studio. If I think that might even be the only time he does it. But yeah, the little the little bonzoisms. Have you ever done tried doing the bottom engine where you hit your no. right hand? Try that because most most right-handed drummers, you'll wanna hit the right at the same time as your foot. So you'll have the whole side of your body go, it's like boom, bum, bum, bum. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like when people, you know, people sometimes say the bottom triplet usually they're talking about you know around the the drum set where you hit the left on the tom or one hand on the tom another one on the tom in the bass room so um but it's i think most right-handed people or drummers find it more natural um they find it easier to lead with the right hand to go into the left i do so so right left right left right left right left right whereas bottom used to play it left right left right left right and I happen to do too. And the only, and you, you just notice it, it makes a, a teeny bit of a difference just by the nature of the way the drum sets laid out because the rack toms on the left side, it's a lot easier for your left hand to hit the, that tom and the snare in your right hand, you know, the floor tom just right there. That's how you kind of get like the descending. Otherwise you won't get an, you'll get an ascending mm-hmm. if you're the triplets the other way. Boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, versus boom, 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 you know? Yeah. All right, so number number three, and so this is actually a record I didn't know existed, and um, it's a uh, coda. 
The song's Darlene, which is uh, track six off Coda, which is, as it's described, a rarities compilation released two years after Bonzo's death in 1982. And this one, I can't for the life of me understand why this wasn't recorded or sorry, released as an actual song, because this is such a good groove. It really is. I, I think um, and, and, and it really. Yeah. Darlene. It is just such a fat sounding. Um, but the, the neat thing that I like about, well, one of the things I like about Darlene is, you know, when, when the song goes and then he goes to the fast part uh, 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 and um, and then he does that fill in there. He's like. Dun, 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 uh. I'm referencing that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Buttons, buttons. But that's something Bonham used to do. He used to love to play a triplet between his hand, his right hand going back and forth between the hi-hat and the snare or another drum and then the foot. Yep. So like, so like a dotted, like, like one and a two and a three and a four and a boom. And then it's like a four over three kind of thing. Yeah, totally. And that's, so Darlene's a great example in Bonsenberg because of, you know, just the way his drums sound there, they sound great. It's a classic Bonham groove, but then when they do that transition, into that uh into that swingy thing and the fill and the fills he puts in there and stuff it's just really nice that's just another sort of a nice thing that you know that that after people sort of get into zeppelin stuff they can kind of go over there and check that out too okay what, what are the other tunes i gave you that we could look at do you remember the uh yeah yeah was- there's the other two are uh no quarter the live version and then dazed and confused live oh my god okay yes the th- the thing about well no quarter now, when I say live version, it's I it's almost like twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, in the sense that th- when I would say like no quarter live version, that's kind of the only live version people had, unless you were a diehard Zeppelin person. You'd be like, well, I have you know the one from Earl's Court or the one from oh my god, the one on the seventy seven tour from you know Albuquerque or whatever. But you know the neat thing about well, there's a couple things to be said real fast in in in. in just strictly speaking, in in anything you hear from the Madison Square Garden stuff on the album or in the uh, uh, the movie, Jimmy Page he cobbled together those performances. I mean, that's just show you how you know solid Bonham was and stuff. Like if you look at certain songs, like even like the Day Is Confused, that's on that record. The half whatever twenty, I think isn't it like a half hour long? It's pretty long. Mm-hmm. I remember the whole side of vinyl. Um, there's like a, like eight pieces from the second night, nine pieces from the first, you know, and then he just put it together. Um, but the, but the, so the ending, the ending piece, but you typically what had happened there is like any beefy part where like page would be soloing or they'd really get into a cool part would be kept in its entirety. I think from a night, I think what they do is they'd say, all right, well, let's just take the intro from another, you know what I mean? Maybe, you know, plant was singing out of tune or something. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you that no quarter live that you find again. It's very important that you find the like the twelve minute version. There's like a nine. There's a version where where Page has edited it out for the past twenty years and all these remasterings and stuff he's done. He's taken the part out. But there's it's just great playing between Bonham used to play very. We used to play with Page like um, it's almost like Bonham would follow Page and John Paul Jones would follow Bonham. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's kind of, generally speaking, that's kind of the way it went. And you'd really, uh, you know, and Keith Moon used to do that with Pete Townsend too. You know, Pete played differently and stuff, wasn't really a solo person. But Moon used to kind of follow Pete Townsend too. And um, But you really hear that on um, No Quarter, just that that vinyl version. If you uh, if you find um, that original version on the Song Remains the Same soundtrack, 
it's just the way Bonham is playing along with Paige. And then as the tune kind of goes on, he does a, a bunch of really interesting th- interesting stuff with the with the bass drum and the hi-hat. Like it's almost kind of it's funk. You'd call it like a funk sort of like, but a taste, not like stereotypical, like like so not necessarily much like a beat displacement is sort of like a, a weird sort of like boogie woogie with his right foot in the snare and the hi-hat going with the foot, almost like little sort of dances. It, the no quarters is a really great example of that, especially as the solo goes on, as you get back almost to the to the, the second you know, the final verse. Yeah, in, 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 in prepping for this, I looked at a few of the live versions because you said it was around the nine nine minute mark. And there it's was long verse. Yeah, there's a there's a Led Zeppelin, it's called No Quarter No Quarter Live nineteen seventy three Best Audio Mix. That's what the name of the YouTube video oh, yeah, is. Yeah. It's gotta be, yeah. And it's yeah, and so I wrote down that there's some really cool play between the hat, snare, and kick drum, soft playing. Oh my god, and and, and totally, you know what the thing is too, is it's like um uh, it, it's actually very, very similar to what I was talking about on the last record and I'm going to crawl. It's that very same, like Bonham had a really cool thing that he'd sort of do little pretty pieces between the bass drum, the snare and the hi-hat, like little sort of like, and it wouldn't last very long. And you kind of be like, wait, wait, what did he play there? And it usually would involve the hi-hat opening a little bit in sort of a disco type way, like, but a predated disco and it didn't sound disco-y, but he just like, he would, he used to love to do a thing where he would hit two bass drum notes softly, like a flutter with an open hi-hat, like boom, 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 boom. And it was like a little sort of dance boogie. And and he employs the shit out of that in that no quarter. Yeah. And, and, and I think in all, if you were to go back and listen to, you know, the no quarter bootlegs from like 75 and 77, you'd hear him do, he does a lot of that in a particular time as the, as the song goes on. You know, they kind of go into that segment. But yeah, so wait, and then I what I, I also said no, I also said Days Confused Live. Yes, and so this is the one I was most excited to talk about because this is from this is uh, Days to Confuse. What the actual song was released on uh, Led Zeppelin from 1969, but the one that we're mostly referring to is is the earlier stuff of them performing it live, and this for me just showcases how people that don't know a lot about Bonzo think he's just a basher he is so dynamic in this song and it's insane he gets so quiet yeah totally you know it, it's like uh and you hear that well because the the big pieces they used to do zeppelin used to take a few of their song their song their numbers as they'd say and really extend them out it, so what they would do with with days confused and with um how many more times is they 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 did really and no quarter was one They'd really extend out. They'd have these big, massive, like pieces, like solos, I guess you'd say. Even at that time, and even now, there's a lot of bands that go out on stage and they're just going to play what's on the record. But hey, we're playing it live. We might extend it a little bit, or we might change a couple words. Where Led Zeppelin would play, like they'd go out and they'd do like the intro and the outro, but they were, they, they 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 totally just play out and essentially just jam the song in front of thirty thousand people. You know what I mean? Well, no, and that's the exact reason why when Bonzo did pass away, you get why they're like, we can't do this anymore totally. without him. There's a reason why that worked. Like, just the eye contact between Bonzo and John Paul Jones in the in a few of the videos I saw of Days, they're they're communicating with their eyes so much, and it's it's incredible to watch. Well, it is, you know, and it's funny. I'm sure there's been times, and there's been times in my life I played with certain musicians. 
You know, you play with certain people like they, like they hear stuff the same way, like they have the same sense of time. And they and again, like sometimes moving the time a little, speed it up or slow it down here. Like it's almost natural. It's not something it's something that preexists that 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 they're picking up on. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, uh, and I think there's a lot of clips where you see like Zeppelin Live, you'll see a lot of photographs of Zeppelin playing, especially in the earlier days where you see John Paul Jones and he'll be looking at Bonzo while he plays. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want they want to make sure that we come right down on that. You know, he'd you know, like there's even a, an article where John Paul Jones talks about he used to just watch Bonham's bass drum. He'd sit and he'd stand there and just watch Bonham as he played like the, you know, because he could tell if he was going to do maybe another pattern or something, too. And he could, you know, um, but there really is nothing. I'll tell you, a live show where Zeppelin were on even a moderately where they were moderately on fire is unbelievable. But I mean, some of those shows where they're just killing it. I mean, I don't know, man. It's, you know, by, it's, it's an interesting Seriously, it's an interesting thing. Seriously, it would be it would have been really neat to see what would have happened if Bonham didn't pass away, and he played drums all through the eighties and the nineties. If nothing happened, you know, there's just a there's just, again there's certain musicians. It's the way they play. You know, like a Steve Gadd, even though he doesn't play with Bonham, Steve Gadd has like his own way of playing. You know, Jimmy Page has his own way of playing. Eric Clapton has their own way of playing. There's just like a certain way people do their instrument, like their personality, their temperament comes out in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I said to somebody once, like their temperament, like with Bonham, Bonham, I think was a very deliberate, like person who just didn't like to be rushed. You know, sometimes like I, I'm a, like Stuart Copeland or, you know, it, it, you know, there's certain people that really, you know, if they kind of talk fast and they're very type A and they like to move fast, they're probably more likely to rush a song, not necessarily speed the thing up. But what I'm saying is, is I think they're more likely to at each at each beat maybe slightly play ahead of the beat you know like if you had a room full of people you know like in the queen thing like well i guarantee you if you know when you listen to that it's like a bell curve you know you have some people clapping early some people clapping on so so it goes so the boom boom clap goes and that's the people clapping a little early and clapping late i guarantee in bonhamville bonham probably would have been one of the people right on or just slightly behind I know naturally with me, I'd be somebody who'd probably be very slightly ahead. You know, <laughs> me too, me too. You know, because so, it, it reflects your general personality. You know, when you play, you know. Um, but that really is the beauty. That really is 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 Bonham, and indeed Zepp. You know, I mean, it was such a really neat. You know, to have John Paul Jones, who's really such a talented bass musician, arranger, keyboard player, and then you have Jimmy Page, who's such a talented musician, guitar player, and then you had Bonham. You know, that really was like one plus one plus, and you throw, you know, a lot of people, you know, it's so funny, I talk to so many people now who I didn't realize how even amongst Zeppelinites, there's so many people who really could kind of take or leave plant. <laughs> really? Like, oh, totally. There's a lot of people who are like, yeah, and then you have plant. But I mean, I love plant. I mean, plant to me was, you know, the icing on the cake, you know, the way his voice sounded, nobody else, saw, nobody else ever sounded like plant or still, you know. So it's almost like with all those guys, you have nobody that sounded like, you have nobody that really ever really sang like Plant, truly. Nobody that ever played the drums like Bonham. There's not a lot of people that can play. I mean, Jimmy Page has, um, you know, like that type of loose, you know, even in, um, you know, Jimmy Page, when he was on fire on a night, it wasn't necessarily any fast skill. It was just the way that he'd bend the notes and mm-hmm. the this, this way he'd go. Uh, so it wasn't even so much his ability to physically play the instrument as what his brain and musicality was doing with it. Um, and that's the same, like, like with bottom too. It's, it just really was like one plus one plus one plus one equals infinity, you know? 
like what we were talking about earlier. Oh, he did this open on the hi-hat on the and of four that he only did in the studio or me saying he did this cool little triplet thing in the downbeat that was two little ghost notes. It's like both those things are not circus tricks, but it's yeah. those choices. That's what makes those guys the gods they are. And that's the thing. Like the only Led Zeppelin song to me where I ever hear anything that is maybe slightly, slightly unbonomy is um, it's on the second record. It just rushes a little bit unusually. It's a uh, tangerine. Okay. You ever listen to Tangerine? It, it just, it, it, there's just, I mean, it doesn't sound defective or anything, but you know, as it goes, it almost sounds like a take where like, it, like we're almost like they meant to take one or two after that, but they just took that. You know what I mean? It's just, but there's never a point in any Zeppelin song to me where Bonham does something where I feel like he's doing it in the wrong spot. Like it's, it's just enough, like we were saying, like he, he'll have a cool, it's not complicated. It's something simple. It fits the music at that exact moment. And he just did it. Like you said, he made the choice to do it at that one time. Like one thing that stands out like that is if you listen to the beginning of uh, Achilles last stand, mm-hmm. for the guitar fades in it. And as the fade comes in, your bottom tap on his 18 inch bell the bell of his 2002 he goes da 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 it's three taps da 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 ting 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 and it just it only does it that one time and it's it's just next time you notice it you hear him just tap it and you can hear a slight delay on it goes it's like it's just it's just classic bottom he just does it that one time he doesn't do it on the outro he doesn't do it 10 times it's just that one little thing man can you let people know where they can find you? Well, the 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 YouTube channel name is Bonzolium. And uh it's you know B O N Z O L E U M. And uh you know like that stuff they used to put on floors called linoleum, but instead yeah. of linoleum it's Bonzolium. Uh although some people will call it Bonzolium sometimes like mausoleum. In in fact that the 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 Jimmy Page guy in the Zeppelin band I used to play some gigs with He'd turn around, the audience would be out there and be like, and everybody, it's uh, Bonzolium. And then people in the audience would be like, you know, it's Bonzolium, you stupid. F-. You know, they'd like <laughs> correct him in front of like five other people. <laughs> but, you know, but yeah, so I'm just on YouTube. I just put the videos on YouTube. I'm not really active on Instagram. I almost feel like I should pay somebody to do it for me. You know, with Instagram, it's too, as I get older, I'm trying to mellow out. Mm-hmm. Trying to de-obsessive compulsize. I'm trying to de-type A. And Instagram is just so there in a minute it's gone. What else you got? What do you, so I just I just really don't do Instagram, although I probably should. But I would really like to get uh, on the ball as far as that documentary on John Bonham's gear, man. If we could find a sugar daddy to finance that project, <laughs> all we need is a, a cam. And nowadays it'd be so cheap with the cameras they have. Oh, absolutely. You know, they'd see us go to the airport and asking around, see us get off the plane and you know stumble into pubs or you know go up to this house and knock. And eventually we'd come across a drum set. We'd be like, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll help you like, find that sugar daddy, dude, because that, that would be successful. So some, we need to find some like single bond trader that makes <laughs> 10 million a month and they just don't know what to do with their money and they love Led Zeppelin, you know? <laughs> That's what we'll do. Yeah. And then we'll make this freaking documentary. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I don't want to take up any more of your time, man. Uh, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. Um, Ben, I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate you getting a hold of me. And I'm going to text you a picture of my buddy Ryan, dude. You're going to go, whoa! 
All right, bro. All right. Please do. All right, man. All right, man. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it, man. See you. And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger. And hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at Isotope.com. Bye.